from CJSR 88.5 FM. You're listening to All That Matters. I'm Josh Turpin. And I'm Sarah Campbell. And you're listening to All That Matters, live for the fun drive. OneDrive is your chance to support another year of great campus and community radio from CGSR. Call or click now to donate. The number is 780-492-2577 or go to cgsr.com slash donate. We've got some fantastic prizes to give away, but first we want to let you know what today's episode is all about. All That Matters is a show about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, All That Matters, we take big smite we take big bites out of <laughs> Let me say that again. We take small bites out of a big question. Each week on All That Matters. And since we have an extra long episode, this week and next, we thought we would tackle some really big questions. This week, what can art tell us about the past? We'll speak with author, rapper, and broadcaster Wob Canoe about his new memoir, The Reason You Walk. He'll tell us how he and his father came through anger and forgiveness to deal with the legacy of residential schools. And have you ever wondered where the humble space between your words come from? University of Saskatchewan professor Yin Liu gives us uh, the historical scoop. On top of our stories this hour, we will be giving away prizes from Variant Edition and the Secret Street Car Shows. You'll get swag from donating, like Friends of CGSR discount card, our 2015 compilation CD, and a CGSR wallet and our brand new new hoodie. And everyone who donates will be entered to win our Fundrive grand prize of an exclusive summer music festival pass to Folkfest, Interstellar Rodeo, Bermuda Fest, and more. The number to call is 780-492-2577 or go to cgsr.com. In just a minute, we're going to tell you about some challenges we'll do on air for you guys this hour. But first, since we're talking about the past, a look back at All That Matters first year on the CGSR airwaves. You're not, you're not just keeping the lights on when you donate. You're also supporting volunteers, reporters, talkers, <laughs> and writers, uh, taboo shop owners, and owners of uh, local landmarks like Chez Pierre. Stereotypically, people talk about Alberta as a province that's hostile to art. So what are your feelings on being an Albertan writer, writing a book about art? Well, I set the book in Ontario. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, for, for once, everyone else has sort of had that their support or their main input taken away, and they're flailing around with their hands on the table trying to find their you know, cutlery and dinner rolls, or their, uh, they can't even tell who's directly in front of them. Turns out that what we thought is cool at you know, 17, 19, and 21 can be very different from what we think is cool at 30 and 40. And uh, alcohol isn't always known to uh, give us good judgment either. And very rarely does somebody bring me a tattoo that, you know, I question their decision to remove it. All That Matters is a weekly show from CJSR that shares stories about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. On this week's episode, Divas. Wow. Well, I was actually watching Hannah Montana, and that's where my name came from. From what character? What what episode? How did it emerge? Well, the one character, the best friend in Hannah Montana is Lola. So I liked the name Lola, and I came up with Lamore because there's more of me to love. So. <laughs> Yeah, my grandfather opened it back in the 70s when there was uh, no nudity at all in Edmonton. You know, it was totally, totally a new thing. Uh, it shocked a lot of people. What's it like to have a grandfather who, who did this and who does this for, has done it for so long? Uh, I guess the one word would be unique. <laughs> um, you know what? You know, he's such a... Um... I can actually sing the song that I just mentioned if you want. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ming <laughs> Rubian 
After sitting in storage for a few years, the whale is midway through being reinstalled by the Sears and a yogurt stand. It definitely spoils the illusion a bit to see the head sitting on dry land and the tail just kind of haphazardly sitting behind it. Did everything that you remember and more? Um, it still smells like metal. I don't smell any urine, but... Definitely smells like metal. I remember the seat being bigger. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're probably smaller. Of course, one of our biggest projects this year was heading to the Edmonton Remand Center to speak to inmates in the boot camp unit about writing poetry behind bars. So it felt like a miracle, honestly, when they finally gave us our visitor badges and let us inside. Once we got in, a guard and someone from the Justice Department led us through a maze of locked doors, nodding up at the security cameras from time to time. I saw one night, I was reading a book, it says, add up all the bad things that happened to you in your life. And just in one year, I came up with, you know, like, I just got a bullet taken out of me, and I was stabbed up and chopped in the face and machete over a drug deal gone bad, and... And uh, my wife passed away. Uh, this is a bad year, so I, I was like, maybe this is why I am the way I am. And this is what I wrote. I wrote this. It's um, I got post-traumatic stress disorder in the realest way from all this prison and thug living. It's got me stressed in the brain. Because where I come from, there really ain't no sunshine. My mama died of AIDS, and I only ate because of crime. Thank you, Lord, for when I'm weak, you make me strong. Lord, help me hold on, give me strength to roll on. You keep calling out to me, I've been lost for so long. Lord, help me hold on, give me strength to roll on. The devil's breath is on my neck, now I need to be strong. From the West Ed Whale to poetry in the Reban Center, we want to keep bringing you fascinating stories about Alberta's arts and culture. So call now and donate. The number is 780-492-2577 or go to cgsr.com. So Sarah, we have some prizes to give away this hour for listeners who donate. First up, we have some graphic novels to give us uh, to give away from Edmonton's brand new comic book store, Variant Edition. They've sent over a copy of Sex Criminals Volume 1, which is exactly as racy and crazy as it sounds. <laughs> and we have a copy of the Outside Circle graphic novel by Edmonton author Patty Labucane Benson and local illustrator Kelly Mellings. Sarah, you read this book this summer when you interviewed Patty for the Boot Camp Poets documentary. What can you tell us about it? Sure. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just give a really general summary. It's The story is about Pete, a young Aboriginal man who's wrapped up in gang violence, and uh, he commits a crime, is convicted, then goes to jail. When he's incarcerated, he's uh, offered the opportunity to participate in a program that would help him check his identity and and learn more about his history as an Aboriginal person in Canada. That means colonialization, but also um, children who have been taken by the government and residential programs. Um, eventually, Pete has to make his own decisions and find out what journey he wants to take. And it's just a really touching novel that reflects a reality for several Indigenous people in Canada. Wow, that sounds like a great book. So listeners, if you donate this hour, you'll be entered to win one of those two books. You'll also be entered to win a priority access ticket for the Secret Streetcar Show. This is a concert series held on the streetcars that go across the river. They pick you up in Old Strathcona, and they actually stop on top of the high-level bridge for the concert. As you can imagine, it's a very tiny space and the tickets go fast. So they're giving away a pre-sale opportunity to get priority access to buy two tickets. So you better make sure you get a seat for you and your friend. That's for October 9th. This seat... Correction, October 9th, and that's the streetcar. October 1st for the streetcar show. 
October 1st. Yes. <laughs> and, if we, and we have some challenges for you listeners out there. Uh, if we raise $300 this hour, our producer, Chris, and I will do the saltine cracker challenge live on air. Um, and Chris loses, I get his job. You know, where you have to eat, uh, you know that game, it's where you have to eat six saltine crackers at once within one minute. It's surprisingly hard. Uh, if you are, uh, and if you're really generous and open your hearts and wallets to support CGSR and all that matters right now, uh, and we raise $500 this hour, I will personally chug one of those aerosol canisters of whipped cream. Right now. <laughs> The number to call is 780-492-2577. Our beautiful phone volunteers are waiting outside right here, ready to take your call. All right, it's time for one of our first stories this hour. If you follow Canada Reads, you probably know Wab Canoe, won last year's competition defending uh, the book called The Orenda, and he hosted it in 2015. If you love rap, you probably know th He's an outstanding Anishinaabe MC. Uh, and if you care about forgiveness and reconciliation, you might be interested in his new memoir, The Reason You Walk, is a story about Wab Canoe's relationship with his dad, Tobasa Nkwet, uh, who <laughs> was sent to residential school as a child. After being taken away from his family, he was beaten for speaking his, speaking his own language and also singing in his language. And after being raped by a nun when he was only nine, he became the Grand Chief of Treaty 3 and respected pr professor and cultural expert at the University of Manitoba. But it took him many years to work through his anger and loss he felt that during the time that he was in residential school. The Reason You Walk is a story about Wab Canoe's relationship with his dad and their last year together. All That Matters, producer Chris Chang-Yang Phillips reached Wab Canoe over the phone in Winnipeg. The story that you tell about your birth is this sweet little parable about coming from an Anishinaabe dad and a white mom from Toronto. Um, you talk about your mom being wheeled into the operating room at the Lake of Woods Hospital in Northern Ontario and about the doctor making a C-section incision. And then you say, he pulled me out, all 10 pounds, 11 ounces of dark brown me from my blonde-haired, blue-eyed mom. A nurse gasped in surprise, um, which I loved. But that's not where your memoir starts. Um, the reason you walk starts with your grandfather naming your newborn dad. Uh, so why did you start there? Well, um, the book focuses on, I would say, focuses on reconciliation on a number of levels. Reconciliation in the indigenous context, reconciliation on um, a national level, reconciliation between a parent and a child. Reconciliation with the loss of someone after they die and grieving their loss. So I think in order to understand all those levels of reconciliation as it, they were expressed in my family story, I think you have to go back to um, the beginning of my father's life to get a sense of the beauty of the culture, the beauty of the family structure that he was born into, and the tie to the land. Because what was damaged, I guess, through residential schools and the ugliness of the Indian Act and some of the self-destruction that followed both in his generation and in mine was um, very damaging to that. And, then, and initially, like I think if you if you start with an appreciation for what was, what was lost or what was damaged, I think you start from a much more powerful place, just on a writerly level. Um, there is a parallel between my father's birth and mine. You know, well, we're both born on Lake of the Woods, and we both had our respective fathers go down to the lake and offer tobacco and uh, name us on the days of our birth. And so I wanted to show that, you know, even though our lives took all these different turns and, you know, different things happened to us, that, you know, there is this continuity between family, naming, um, the land and the lake that we come from. So, I guess there was a few few levels that I was thinking about there. Why why I wanted to choose that as a starting point. Hmm. 
Okay, so your dad was taken away from his community to the St. Mary's Residential School in Kenora, Ontario, when he was just a little boy. Um, when you were growing up, how did he talk about that time? Well, he didn't really. He didn't really speak about it. Um, in uh, in terms of like, oh, I went to residential schools, and you know, here's what happened to me there. Rather, what I got growing up was like little glimpses like oh here's a time that you know I um my dad died and I saw his uh you know funeral and here's what happened you know you know it raised a lot of questions I was like okay well why why was your dad buried at your school you know like that time seems pretty different from my schooling experience like why why were you beaten up after your dad's funeral which happened at your school that seems pretty different and then um in the house on the res that I grew up in, like we have this stool in our kitchen that was the stool that kids' um, hair was cut on when they first came into the residential school. And we had the bell, which was um, rung, you know, for mealtime. And I was like, well, why, why, you know, we used to fight over that stool, but then when I learned that it came from my dad's old residential school, I was like, well, why, why was it important for you to keep that? So little glimpses like that. Then it was when, um, I think the residential school story came out more in public view for the whole country. You know, late 90s, mid-2000s, that era, when uh, the stories of the residential school survivors really started coming out and being told in the media, in the public spheres, you know, at conferences in the Indigenous community. Then I was kind of like, okay, so what I was hearing little bits and pieces of was part of something much larger and much more expansive. My understanding happened along with the rest of the country. You know, like I, my first time really hearing my father open up on an emotional level of those things, you know, as I write the book, was in a moment that was recorded by video cameras for national broadcast, right? So it was this weird mix of us going through our personal journey and our family journey while also um, being part of this much larger public experience of truth-telling in the beginning of reconciliation. In the book, you talk about inheriting a mutated form of your dad's anger about that time in residential school. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, what I mean by that is um, obviously what my father went through in residential school is you know, way worse than anything I've experienced in my own life. Being removed from his parents and his culture and uh, you know, all the terrible things that happened to him, you know. The worst I ever experienced when I was young was just, you know, some racism and maybe a few physical attacks and things like that. Nothing nothing at a scale of what he went through. Um, just systematized, large-scale uh, oppression with a very ugly, nasty, you know, personal face. But um, I think there are some parallels. And specifically, the parallel is of young people being made to feel powerless and that triggering an emotional response in them that um, grows into a rage and grows into an anger which uh, becomes self-destructive and leads those people onto um, a damaging lifestyle. So for my father, it was, you know, before the priests and nuns, you know, he you know, was made to cower or was made to, you know, feel ashamed and that made him feel powerless. And that created a, you know, a burning ember of rage inside of him. And then he grew into an adult with some very ugly um, tendencies, you know, sometimes being alcoholic, sometimes being violent, and, you know, sometimes being very self-destructive. And then uh, when I was growing up, you know, my dad was the um, figure who was uh, the, the domineering one, and the, you know, oppressive figure in my life sometimes and I, and I had the same reaction of like feeling powerless and it created um, a deep-seated anger and then later on in my life you know that anger led to me being a self-destructive young man and party lifestyle and getting into fights and stuff like that so I think um, like I said the, 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 the situation is totally different you know, my, my dad's situation was as a result of um, government-created oppression, and mine was more just like my own, you know, selfishness and short-sightedness, 
was like I think the big determining factor. But there were, but there are some similarities to our experience in writing the book. One of the things that I learned is that recognizing how my dad made me feel and how he interpreted and how uh, rather he inherited that from his experience with the priests and nuns in residential school. I recognize some of how I am a parent towards my own son's today. How I'm, you know, maybe too quick to anger and, um, you know, loud, loud yelling and stuff like that. And um, how I'm probably making them feel the same way. So I guess in that way, writing this book and reflecting on the past was helpful because it highlighted to me, I guess, the intergenerational legacy of residential schools in my family and how. I have to change this defect in my personality that leads me towards anger if I want to throw that legacy off. So it just showed me, like, I've got work yet to do. It may have improved my thinking and way of life, but I've still got work yet to do if I really want to say that I've cast off the legacy of uh, colonialism in residential schools. That's a really tough process to go through to, to look at what's going on with your parents and see it. Like, be honest about it being reflected in yourself. Yeah, I think it's it's um, it's a challenge, definitely, to look at yourself in an honest light and being be willing to admit your own shortcomings. But I think the even greater challenge is just on, like, the day-to-day level, being able to remember those lessons and being able to try and put them into practice. Because, I mean, if I'm at a ceremony or if I'm sitting there writing a book and I, I realize I'm a... I'm a domineering parent and I ought to fix that. You know, that's one thing. But to be in the moment with my kids and they're acting up and I feel like yelling at them is to remind myself of that. Like to me, that, like walking that insight or walking that, you know, change that you want to make in your life or in the world on a day-to-day level, that's, to me, the really big challenge. And I think the one where we all kind of, you know, struggle. Because, like, all of us could probably say, like, oh, we want to be... Gandhi or, you know, Martin Luther King or, you know, we want to be like these great people. We all want to be Malala, you that. But then, like, in that moment where somebody's being a jerk to us or, you know, we cut off in traffic, you know, we show our true colors and it's, uh, it's hard to remind ourselves of those uh, big lessons. Hmm. Um, one thing that really struck me about this book um, is that it seems amazing that your dad held on to these elements of Anishinaabe culture, like you read, you write about your dad being beaten for singing songs in Anishinaabe um, yeah. and for standing beside his father's coffin at his funeral instead of kneeling like a good Catholic. Um, yeah. But then, as an adult, he found all these ways to become deeply woven into traditions from where he was from. Like he became Grand Chief of Treaty Three, and then that path that he took to try to heal after your older brother's death um, that led him to that Sundance ceremony in South Dakota. Um, how do you think your dad kept that flame alive of his culture, of where he was from? Well, I think um, that was a good side of that same characteristic that whose bad side was anger and violence. The good side of that same sort of edge that he had inside of him was that, no, I'm going to fight to hang on to these things. You know, you want to beat this out of me? No, I'm going to hang on to it even stronger. You know, and he had that warrior's mentality. And actually... Um, so one of the things that he said in his testimony to the TRC is... Uh, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation hope, Commission. Yeah, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In his testimony to that body, he said, you know, I hope my my descendants know that I was a warrior and they, they know that I never backed down from a fight. And um, I hope that they do the same and fight for their children and their rights and all that. That's Wab Canoe speaking about his book, The Reason You Walk. I'm Josh Turpin, joined today by my co-host, Sarah Camo Alphasema. More from that interview in a minute, but first, an update on our fund drive total. So far, thanks to listeners like you, we've raised $107 this hour. Thank you guys so much. That means a lot. The number again to donate is 780-492-2577 or go to cgsr.com. You're listening to All That Matters from CGSR, uh, stories about arts and cultures around Alberta. This week, we're asking what art can tell us about the past, and we are live for the fun drive. It looks like, oh, we've just got a total for the fun drive, $5,347. Thank you, guys. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This week... um, 
all hour, we're asking for your support to keep making another year of community radio. You know, all of CGR, uh, CGSR's news shows, like All That Matters, are pretty much entirely run by volunteers. And Sarah, this is your last show with us, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. I'm moving to London, England, but you may hear stories from me in the future, so don't count me out yet. Well, we are going to miss you here. But tell us a bit about why you volunteer at CHR and and what listeners uh, are supporting when they donate. Well, I, I'm really interested in pursuing a career in journalism. And unfortunately, because I didn't study journalism, I did my degree in political science, I realized that it's quite difficult for me to get any other training experience. So um, I emailed Chad way back when, and he was just so welcoming. He responded and said, we're going to have an orientation and gave me an overview and just said, CGSR is more about community, welcoming people, whatever your strengths are, just bring that. And so I felt um, that that's just a pl- this is a place where I belong and I wanted to continue because I feel like my voice matters and it was welcomed. What do listeners expect with CJSR? What was your question? Repeat that. I totally forgot. <laughs> <laughs> your last question. Uh, my last question was uh, what are listeners uh, supporting when they donate? They're supporting voices of people that may feel like their voices aren't heard in other um, venues. So they're just also supporting community radio, radio, which is often taken for granted. Well, uh, listeners, on top of supporting great radio opportunities like that, you'll also get some perks from donating this hour. You can get a CJSR hoodie, t-shirt, frisbee, wallet, CD if anyone still uses those, and (laughs) Friends of CJSR discount card. Uh, This hour, you'll also be entered in a draw to win graphic novels from Variant Edition Comics in Edmonton, exclusive pre-sale access to buy tickets for the secret uh, streetcar show on October 1st. And if you help us reach a total of $300 in in donations this hour, Chris and I will do the saltine cracker challenge and I will get his job. If we're at one of our benchmarks, uh, yeah, we'll do Do it. (laughs) Do the challenge. Yeah. Uh, The number to call is 780-492-2577 or go to cjsr.com slash donate. All right. Well, this hour, we've been speaking with author, rapper, and broadcaster Wab Canoe about his new book, The Reason You Walk. It's a memoir about his father and how his dad struggled to forgive the people around him after the t- after his time in residential school in Kenora, Ontario. Wab's father, Toba Sukowat Canoe, became a respected authority on Anishawabe. My apologies, I can just try to say that. Um, Anishinaabe culture inside and outside of academia. But he also built some surprising relationships before his death in 2012. Here's our producer, Chris Cheng Yan Phillips, with part two of his interview with Wab Canoe. For him, being a warrior at the end of his life no longer meant being a fighter or an angry person, but rather it meant being somebody who's willing to stand up. For the culture, for the for the language, for his uh, for his family. Hmm. I was surprised by how much of this book and your dad's journey that you describe was focused on the church, the Catholic Church, and in particular yeah. on your dad building these relationships with the Vatican and with the Archbishop of Winnipeg. Yeah. How much did that surprise you that he kept trying to build relationships with people in these institutions that had caused him such profound pain? Well, that was what I learned like along that journey watching him um, and then reflected on in the book was um, I did wonder a lot about that. Like, why is he even worried about this? Why not just forget about it and move on? But what I had to recognize is that, you know, he spent years in that residential school. Um, he spent years going to Mass. He spent years as a child, you know, being taught how to pray in the Catholic tradition. And that made an imprint on him, you know, for better and for worse. You know, the, the worst side we already talked about, but for better, too, you know, like some of the... Well, one of the priests was a, was a kind person to him. And he did, even in his um, times of hurt, he was showing this, uh, this lay brother, Brother Andre, who became a saint later on, 
um, to pray to, and you know that gave him strength even when he was suffering in the, in the residential school. So that made an imprint on his soul. So what you have is he came out of the residential school and he was damaged in some way, and yet some part of his spirit was Catholic. Some part of his you know character was Catholic. It was molded by the church. So he lived his whole life scarred or you know hurt in some way by that, but it was still always there. You know, like a huge chunk of him was Anishinaabe and, you know, a traditional person and a sun dancer. But I think part of what reconciliation meant for him is that he had to be able to put his life uh, together in such a way at the end so that he could express himself in his most honest and most truthful fashion, which is to say that he had to be able to also express that part of him which was shaped by the Church and which was influenced by the Catholic tradition. And what had held him back all those years was the racism that the Church held towards our people. But through the process of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the apology and the trip to the Vatican and the canonization of Kateri uh, Teguita, he saw that that veil of racism, which was preventing him from you know, truly expressing that you know, Catholic side to Catholic dimension to his uh, personality, was being lifted. And it freed him to just, you know, say, you know what, I'm a spiritual person and I reflect it however I want to. I don't have to fit neatly into any category. You know, some days I am the sun dancer, a hardcore sun dancer, but other times I go to Mass, you know? And so to me that's a very beautiful thing. Like, I think, you know, we're all human beings. We want to reflect ourselves in whatever way truly, truly um, that makes us feel free. So very few of us, I think, will fit neatly into one category. You know, we ought to recognize there's many paths to the same goal. And uh, I think it's a good lesson, you know. I'm not sure whether the Church believes the same thing, that there's many paths to the same goal. But I shouldn't just be waiting for them and their understanding to be fully realized. I should also learn from my father's example and say, well, you know, I should recognize that there's many paths to the same goal. For me, it's traditional spirituality. For somebody else, it's going to be the, you know, secular humanist tradition, maybe somebody else gets all the meaning in their life necessary for science, and maybe other people, they like to go to the masjid, they like to go to a mosque, you know, they like to go to a temple, they like to go to a church, I should respect all those things. So yeah, for me, it was surprising to see my father's um, interest in the church, but that is understanding that and understanding what motivated him to want to go back there and make things right with the church, I think, led me to some of the deepest lessons and best insights that I gained on that whole that whole process of walking that walking that last year with him. Hmm. That last year being the year um after you found out that he had cancer and you're yeah, kinda of getting well. closer. Yeah. Um well, well tell me about some of what you learned from him in that last year together. Well I think the biggest lesson is that you know we're we're all human beings and um we all share a common destiny. We all share um common planet and uh we we ought to we ought to live together and respect one another you know we um we want to do good we want to be perfect but none of us are so given the fact that things are going to go wrong part of what we have to learn is um how to respond to things when they go wrong so if we do if we do wrong then we ought to admit it and work towards uh making things right. And we also have to forgive ourselves. And um, if people do wrong to us, then we have to learn how to forgive. Keep ourselves safe first, but then also learn how to forgive. And uh, really, as he did, we want to put our lives together so that the only thing we leave behind uh, after we leave is uh, the positivity, good times, and you know, the, um, the love uh, for our friends and our family. Hmm. You talk about Reconciliation not being a grand gesture between a prime minister and a national chief. Um, can you tell me about one of the moments from your dad's life that you got to see that that showed that to you? Well, I think um, there were a lot of public expressions of it. You know, the um, I think when the archbishop came to the Sundance, that was significant because that was a uh, was a leap on his part. You know, I'm sure the other bishops looked at him like, "What are you doing going to this?" When your dad invited um, the Archbishop of Winnipeg? He invited him, yeah, but I think it's testament to the Archbishop's character that he actually came, 
and accepted the invitation. The adoption was uh, big, and my father and Phil Fontaine and uh, Uncle Fred and Phil's brother Bert adopted the uh, Archbishop as their brother. I think that was pretty huge, saying that, you know, this guy who's the descendant of the people who uh, took us away from our families is now our brother. I think that was pretty huge. But I, I'm so grateful for the journey, you know, that I went on with my dad. Like, there's no part of me that, you know... Even even holds a grudge or you know, um, like I don't even think forgiveness is the appropriate term. Like we were, we're basically the same person. You know, we're 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 reflections of the same person, or we're brothers, or we're best friends. And we're we were tossed on this journey on this planet together, and uh, you know the things that happened in his life that made him behave the way that he did. I understand because I you know behave the same exact way a lot of times. So. Yeah, I mean, is there total forgiveness? I guess that's total forgiveness, you know. I don't, but I don't even think about it in terms of like, oh, he owed me something. I had to decide to forgive him. I just feel like, you know, we're 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 two peas of the same pod, you know. We're two brothers in this in this thing called life, and uh, you know, I just love him so much, and I'm so grateful that he was able to show these uh, lessons to me in his time here on Earth. And the greatest legacy that he gave me was the was a insight into humanity and um, what it means to be a good person. So I hope that I'd be able to continue that and um, in terms of, uh, yeah, following through on that lesson, you know, if he could forgive so much worse, like who am I to even, you know, entertain thoughts of uh, acrimony or, you know, negativity. Like, no, it's, it's all good. It's all positive. Hmm. The, the title of your memoir, The Reason You Walk... Um, you say it, it comes from this Anishinaabe traveling song that, that tells a story about where we come from, why we're here. For individuals and for Canada as a nation, why is it important to have a story like that, of where we come from and, and why we're here? Well, I think, you know, we, look, one of the amazing things about human beings is, um, the fact that we have language and that we can share knowledge with one another. And part of what that means is that we can plan for the future and dream of a future, but part of part of that also means that we can learn these insane lessons, super powerful lessons from the past. And um, the greatest lessons of uh, humanity have already been learned, you know. None of us are going to go out here and... <laughs> figure something out that, like, uh, some old Anishinaabe guy or, you know, some old uh, guy in China or India or, you know, uh, Turkey or the Middle East or Africa or, you know, Europe hasn't already thought of or experienced or that some woman, you know, or some, uh, you know, person from any walk of life has experienced already. So really, um, we, do, we do well to try and learn the lessons of the past. And for me, it, part of it's like we, we want to avoid, we definitely want to avoid making the mistakes of the past, right? So we want to learn about what, what was wrong at the heart of the idea behind residential schools. Why was it wrong to take kids away from their parents and their culture? Why was it wrong to believe that one culture was superior to another, you know, so that we can learn from those lessons and put those lessons to work today so we don't make the same mistakes, you know? What was it? in that era that allowed us to look at another human being and say that you're not human and you don't belong here, right? And then turn around and be able to use those lessons today and say, okay, there's a little kid in Syria or, you know, Hungary or, you know, Serbia right now who's uh, suffering. Maybe we should respond differently based on what we've learned. So that's part of it. But I think part of it is also the inspiration and the motivation, you know. So when we, when we hear from, like, um, Somebody who's a survivor of something um, super intense, whether it's a, you know the Great War or you know, Holocaust, you know, we know that we can learn something from their life experience. What I what I would like Canadians to also realize is that we can learn those similar lessons from the residential school survivors, those people who went through you know this terrible dark period of Canadian history and then emerged as uh, you know fully formed human beings on the other side. Like those are some of our best stories of inspiration and best stories of how to be a human being. So 
yeah, I mean, we can all learn from the past. We can all learn the lessons of the past. And uh, I would just hope that we take as much of the positive as we do of the uh, cautionary tales. Hmm. All right. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, man. Yeah, and uh, you definitely don't want to auction off a date, right? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't mind auctioning it off. The only thing is I don't know if I'd actually live up to my sort of a bargain. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always traveling, so I'm not sure I'll be able to meet up with anyone. Plus, I'm married, so you know. Yeah, yeah, small obstacle. Yeah. Thanks to Wab Canoe for speaking with us. He will be in Edmonton on October 17th at LitFest to talk about his new memoir, The Reason You Walk. Also thanks to Three Amigos and Earth General Store for their generous donations of food and coffee. You're listening to All That Matters from CGSR. I'm Sarah Campbell-Fazema. And I'm Josh Turpin. Today we're asking what art can tell us about the past, and we are live this hour from CGSR's Fun Drive, which means you won't hear Mr. Frost on Minister Faust. Minister Faust on MF Galaxy, but he has a message for you. Hi, I'm Minister Faust, and for 23 years I was a DJ and public affairs host and producer at CJSR, the radio station that literally changed my life. I left in 2012, but I'm back with my new show, MF Galaxy, which features writers on writing, pop culture, progressive politics, and Afrocentricity every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. Right now, it's Fun Drive 2015, and CJSR needs your support to continue to provide the best quality programming it can and to change lives of programmers and the audience. So call up CJSR right now, make your monthly pledge, and do your part for E-Town's best homegrown radio community. That's right. The number to call is 780-492-2577 to donate or go to cgsr.com slash donate. So far, listeners, you've helped us donate $107 this hour, bringing us to a grand total of $5,347 so far on the first day of the fund drive. Thank you guys so much for your donations. But guys, we still have to reach at least $300 by the end of the hour so that Chris Chang Yang Phillips and I will do the saltine cracker challenge. And if I win, Chris will give me his job and he will become a student again. Well, we've got one more story for you today before we get to the prizes and the rest of our listener challenges. Have you ever wondered where the evolution of language comes from? An example that might enlighten you is texting or the hashtag. Ten years, uh, nobody could have. In ten years ago, nobody could have predicted that technology used most today would be not the book, or ebook, or computer, but the phone. Well, you know how there's a lot uh, uh, that English speakers take for granted. Uh, have you ever tried to read a whole page of literature that has no spaces in between the words? Do you think it would be easier or harder to read? Well, that's how it used to be. To discuss the origin of the blank space in between our words, we spoke with Yin Du of the English Department of the University of Saskatchewan. She was in Edmonton for a conference on her findings about the technologies of language and the origin of space. You guys need to call 780-492-2577 to donate. Well, Yin, uh, welcome to CGSR and All That Matters. How are you doing today? Uh, good, thanks. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background? Um, I'm an English professor, so um, my area of specialization is medieval studies. So I do medieval English language and literature. Um, I also have a secondary research interest in digital humanities. What got you into that area? Um, I actually got my uh, my... I actually was a student here at the U of A, um, so I did my undergraduate degree and my uh, my doctorate here. Um, and uh, I think I liked the medieval stuff just because it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> well, it was it was different, hard and, history. and and possibly useless. So it, that was very appealing. Well, apparently not. Appar- I know. I was, <laughs> I was as surprised as everyone else. What first got you interested in the medieval languages or English? Um, I think I just enjoyed the challenge of reading it, um, and uh, you know, the more you read it, the more you get used to it. So it's not as challenging after you've spent a bit of time on it. But uh, 
Um, it's intriguing. It's uh, the great thing about a language that no one speaks anymore is that no one can really tell you that you're wrong. So, uh, <laughs> so you're always right. <laughs> now, what time periods do you span? So um, the research project I'm working on now um, uh, goes from circa 500 to circa 1500, okay. so 1,000 years. Um, and that, that basically takes you from the, the very first records of English writing right to uh, just after the introduction of the printing press to England. So okay. that's, the, that's the Middle Ages in England. Mm -hmm. And what is your research project? Uh, the, the project's called Medieval Codes. Um, basically, in a nutshell, what we're looking at is uh, we're looking at medieval documents um, produced in England as information technology. So again, um, I think we have a tendency today to think of technology as being electronic gadgets. Mm -hmm. right? So when people tell me what technology that I use in the classroom, they are expecting me to, I don't know, talk about... Your iPad, your iPhone. Or, yeah, your, things I show on the screen. Your pointer. And, yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And when I say chalk, they, they go, that's not technology, but it is. It is, yeah. Right? So, it's a tool. Um, so, yeah, so we're looking at... Um, uh, trying to get look at uh, information technology in the Middle Ages. I'm just restricting it to England just because so, we have to restrict it somehow. Because it, um, it is a big yeah, and, and, <laughs> time and, and, and that's that's my that's my area of specialization anyway. So that's kind of what I'm trained trained for. But um, here's a question: Where did the space come from in between words? Yeah. So the the talk I I, I was just giving here um, on campus yesterday was um, was about word separation by space, and the history of that is actually very well documented. Um, so, uh, what happens if you look at manuscripts from um, from the classical era and late antiquity? So these are Greek and Roman manuscripts, so written in Greek and Latin. Um, they're not word separated. In other words, you just get a string of letters without any spaces between what we would call words. Um, and the usual explanation for this, um, and it's one that I don't have any quarrel with, is that these are meant to be read aloud. Mm -hmm. So you you just sound out every letter and you find yourself saying words, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't need spaces between words. Um, and what happens is that um, in the late 7th century, early 8th century, um, starting with Irish scribes, um, and then mm -hmm. this practice is picked up by Anglo-Saxon scribes in England um, shortly after. Um, Irish scribes and Anglo-Saxon scribes didn't speak a language that was derived from Latin. So if you came from anywhere in the Mediterranean world, if you're Italian or French, your language in the early Middle Ages was basically a dialect of late Latin. Okay. Right? So if you were reading a Latin, Latin text and it wasn't word separated, it, you know, you still had to work at it a little bit to kind of figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, it, it wasn't that difficult. Whereas if you were um, Irish or, or Anglo-Saxons, Irish or English, you were basically learning a new language at the same time as you were learning how to read. Um, and so and so what these Irish scribes started doing was uh, putting spaces in to their text. Um, and what they what the spaces actually do originally um, is to, and this is the part where um, uh, I, I'm bringing in some ideas that uh, uh, that that um, most of the, some of the scholars who are working on this before ha hadn't hadn't uh, uh, tried explaining, but um, they're actually trying to separate out grammatical units, right? In in the string of letters, mm -hmm. saying, okay, um, the way we want to read this is we need to figure out, you know what the grammatical units in this you know, string of symbols are. And so one w way of doing it, uh, you can do there's a bunch of different ways. You can put little dots in. Like right? the Greeks do. Yeah, that's right, interpuncts. You can you can um, just put little lines in to separate things out. And we actually had to have some manuscripts where you could tell that a later English reader... Like the has, dictionary does. does <laughs> yeah, has, take, has gone by, gone in and like stuck little lines in to help him right. read, read the text. Or you can just, right off the bat, just start putting spaces mm -hmm. um, so now, in. Why would they do this? Um, so that's that's what I was looking at, mm -hmm. right? Um, and again, um, the the usual uh, one of the explanations is actually helps you read faster, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so uh, so it's easy to assume. Okay, well, 
it, it, it increases reading efficiency. And they've actually, we've actually, there's actually recent research, um, eye tracking studies have shown that um, just the neurophysiology of it, mm-hmm. uh, that for readers of modern English text, um, the spaces between the words help us to target our, where our eyes, our gaze lands. These are called fixations um, in the text. And so um, uh, it helps you have more accurate fixations. And so you actually have uh, fast, a faster, more efficient reading speed, right? So it's easy to assume that, um, you know, medieval readers uh, found out somehow that if you added spaces in, you could read faster and increase your reading efficiency, and that's a good thing. But, but that's the, not the case, is But it? the argument I'm making is that it's actually not the case. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, they weren't doing eye-tracking studies, so it's not, no. <laughs> it's not like they knew that it was going to increase their reading speed. In fact, they didn't want to read faster. Mm-hmm. Um, the spaces between words are actually there to encourage people to read slower. And why is that? Because the, the, what they... When, when you were trained to read in the early Middle Ages... Um, the, the model of reading was one that I call grammatical. In other words, you wanted to take this text, you wanted to break it down to its grammatical units, and you wanted to to think about every single word, right? You wanted to extract as much meaning as you could out of it. Um, and so... You you didn't want to you didn't want to drive your eye onward, right? Mm-hmm. You wanted to constantly be stopping and thinking. How long might it have taken to read, you know, a single story in the Bible? Um, well, that depends. With the spaces, yeah. So with or without the spaces, um, you know. And, and again, um, my argument is that I don't think the spaces actually made a difference in actual reading speed. Um, mm-hmm. So it, physiologically, it makes it possible for you to read faster, but that doesn't mean that you actually did read faster because mm-hmm. you probably wanted to read slower. So, um, so one one story I I, I, uh, I bring up in in my research is there's a um, there's a Bede's Life of St. Cuthbert, which was written around 721, um, tells a story about the, uh, the, the monk Cuthbert, and he's, he's a young monk at this point, and he's asking his, his mentor, Boisil, is about to die, and God's revealed to him that he's going to die in seven days or something. So he, um, so he says to Cuthbert, you know, learn as much as you can from me before I, before I kick the bucket. And Cuthbert says, well, recommend a book that I can read in a week. And um, mm-hmm. Boisil says, well, I happen to have here this handy copy of the Gospel of John, um, in Latin, of course, because that's how you would have read it in the early Middle Ages. Um, probably not written in the word separated script, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's it's helpfully kind of divided up into these um, uh, seven gatherings or choirs, so um, just little uh, kind of subunits in the book, and so we can read one a day, um, and and this will work. So that's what they do. They take a whole week to read the Gospel of John. So what Boyce and Cuthbert are doing is they're just not reading through it like we would read through it. Mm-hmm. They're they're discussing it. They're using it as a basis for theological debate. And and, and what's interesting about uh, what Bede says is that they read through it unusually quickly. So now, how come some languages haven't adopted the space, like Thai yeah, or right. Mandarin? Yeah. So, uh, well, the Chinese writing systems, so um, are what's in co- what's called scripto continua, like early mm-hmm. early Latin documents and that kind of stuff, um, and Thai and Japanese, right? They're they're scripto continua writing systems, which means they don't have they use, don't use spaces uh, to separate words. Continuous script, continuous That's right, writing. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so again, um, recently, um, a lot of very good work has been done uh, with eye tracking studies on people who read these scripts, and uh, they're not any less efficient than word separated script because people just use different visual visual cues to to know where to target your fixations. Right. So Thai, there's certain characters that tend to occur at word boundaries, and mm-hmm. so subconsciously, Thai readers just kind of notice those, and and so their eyes just move accordingly. Um, uh, I think they found with Japanese that the, the kanji characters tend to be used as visual cues for word boundaries mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. So, you know, you don't have to have spaces between words to read efficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you don't use spaces, you use something else. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in the in history of um, the Roman alphabet, in, in, uh, so um, the script we use to write English... Um, one of the ways of marking word boundaries is actually not by space, but by having special characters 
that were specific to the beginnings or ends of words, right? Okay. So you might be familiar, for example, with the difference between, if you look at really old English books, the difference between the long S and what we think of as the normal S, mm-hmm. right? So um, well, the, the shape that we use, the letter form that we use as our normal S today was actually um, a word, a specialized word final form. Okay. The normal form of the S was the long S, Right, okay. the thing that looks like an F without the little crossbar. Um, right. So, and of course, it's still, it's still, it's the integral sign in calculus today, actually. Right. Um, so the long S was the normal form of S, right? Mm-hmm. And the form that we use today was actually a special form that you put at the ends of words, so it was easier for you to see where the word boundary was. Hmm. So you can use stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so you don't have to have, have spaces, and so yeah. Thank you, Yin, for coming in and talking with us at All That Matters and CJSR. Well, thank you very much for your interest. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Professor Yin Lu for speaking with us. And thanks to all you listeners out there in listener land. This hour, we've raised $107, and we are almost at the end of our special hour-long live episode of All That Matters, where we've been talking about the past. And your chance has almost passed to win some great prizes for your donation. So call 780-492-2577 right now and you'll be entered to win a graphic novel from Variant Edition Comics, a pre-sale shot shot at tickets from The Secret Streetcar Show. And now, Josh, how are we doing in getting in with the listener challenge? Well, you know what, uh, Ed, we're, we're still going to make the 300, I guarantee that, but uh, we're going to do the saltine cracker challenge now, because Chris has been talking some, uh, he's been talking some beef off the air, um, so Chris, are you ready? Oh, I am ready. I've, I've done this before, but one by one, uh, so I, I, have, I haven't done the whole six crackers all at one time. Yeah, well, that's nothing. But uh, Here are your you're six, going down. you can examine yeah. them to make sure that they're all intact. Yeah, these are regulation crackers. Good. Good. So Chris has just accepted the six crackers in his hand. In his hand. And I have my six. If I could have a third body, they're all full I believe crackers. that they're They're six. all six crackers that are full. All right. On your marks. Whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Getting the stack ready. Get set. Go. Wow, this is uh, very intense. Oh, my gosh, Chris, come on. I, Josh has just stuffed them with ease in his mouth and... It looks like I'm ready to already announce who's the winner. But you never know. Live radio. This is live radio. You never know. (laughs) And of course, we'll be posting a video to Twitter. Oh, gosh. Live radio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, you guys. You're doing so great. If you guys are listening, we are doing this just for all of you guys. So call in, win those comic books, or donate. Anything is appreciated. The number is 780-492-2577. You can also donate online at cgsr.com slash donate. <laughs> All right, um, before we give away one of the graphic novels from Edmonton's great new comic book store, Variant Edition, we want to announce some of the events that they have coming up. Next Monday, they'll be hosting a panel on indigenous representation in pop culture, and the creators of the graphic novel, The Outside Circle, the Outside Circle will be speaking, as well as Edmonton writer and comic book creator Richard Van Camp. <laughs> you can win a copy of The Outside Circle by donating right now. Again, the number is 780-492-2577. You c- on October 3rd, Variant Edition will be hosting a community geek swap. You can head down and bring all your geeky items around the house to swap for something cool. And this weekend, they're hosting a pre-sale party for the next Magic The Gathering release. So head to Variant Edition on 123rd Street and 104 Avenue. I think I won. <laughs> Marco, what do you think? You're a non-partisan judge. I'm going to have to call you in because that was a little bit difficult. Uh, I have no clue. Well, Chris, like you can admit defeat that I destroyed you there. Oh, yeah, I admit defeat. Yeah. I got through zero crackers. There you go. <laughs> destroyed. Right. Crushed. You also, Josh, you also spat some crackers on me, so I feel like you should be disqualified. <laughs> 
All right, it's time to give away to the uh, three donors from this hour. So drawing first for a copy of uh, Sex Criminals Volume 1 from Variant Edition Comics. Woo! Uh, mystery donor number one, who has asked us to not say their name on air, but uh, thank you so much for donating. We'll give you a call after this hour. Okay, for our second prize, the graphic novel The Outside Circle, we have... Denise. Thank you so much, Denise. You are a very, very, very special listener. Um, and our last prize, go, uh, which is the Secret Streetcar Show uh, presale ticket access, goes to Mystery Listener Number 2, who has also asked us not to say their name on air. Thank you so much for donating to support All That Matters. Well, thanks, you guys. Congrats. And thanks to all of you who donated this hour. Uh, we will be back next week with another family-sized hour-long episode of All That Matters live for the Fun Drive. It's a special episode on what art can tell us about the future. We'll be talking with Nuit Blanche, uh, spoiler culture, and we'll have U of A student pr uh, union president, Navik Kinda, in to speak with us. Up next is Waza Africa. All That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Production today was done by Chris Chengyan Phillips and Marco Visconti. Our theme music is by Dakashatiro. Additional music by Russian Murphy and Wab Canoe. But we didn't get to listen to it, but thanks, Swab. <laughs> if you have comments or questions about the show, send us an email. We're at allthatmatters at cjsr.com. We have all our episodes on our website. All that matters, cjsr.wordpress.com. Um, you can also find us on our Facebook and Twitter. We're at ATMCJSR. Let us know what you think of the show, and we'd love to hear from you. And Sarah, good luck on your future endeavors in England. We'll miss you. I'm Josh Turpin. And I'm Sarah Campbell-Fazema. Thank you for listening.